the evil of corruption reaches into every corner of the world. Corruption lies at the heart of the most urgent problems we face. Welcome to Confidential Brief, where Chad Thomas takes you into the stories behind the issues facing our society. It's not every day one gets to sit with a bona fide recce. When one sits in pubs and one sits in restaurants, everybody hears the recce stories. If one has to listen to all the stories out there, it would have been the biggest regiment in South African history. Johan Roth is a bona fide reconnaissance operator, and he's going to be telling us about how he became an operator and his history in the South African Defense Force. He's written a book called Blood Money, and I just want to read an extract from the back of the book. It says, I remember the cracking sound of the AK-47 bullets as they tore through our windscreen. A friend's Garmin GPS and my digital camera were on the dashboard. The bullets pierced both. A piece of bullet struck my bulletproof vest in the, in the chest area, and another piece broke off and lodged in my left forearm. It sounds like something out of a movie. It sounds like something that, you know, one sees when we imagine the seals going in and one imagines the rangers going in. But it's something that very many South Africans experienced. Johan, it is indeed an honor to welcome you to the show. Thank you, Chad. Appreciate the, the opportunity. Now, for those listeners, um, Johan Roth, I must just declare, is somebody I've known for many years. And 10 years ago, the last time I actually saw Johan, he took me for a drive in his new toy. Johan, what was that new toy? It was a 911 Turbo. <laughs> and let me tell you something. That 911 Turbo, Johan, obviously, through his offensive and defensive drive, he knew how to put through its paces. Johan, how fast do you think we were going? Uh, Chat, I can't remember, probably 290. Well, Johan, I remember clearly because just the thought of it, I get anxiety attacks. I hope you enjoyed it. Johan, do you think that is because being an operator, etc., you're still an adrenaline junkie? I think it is part of it. I've, um, I've denied this over the years, but um, subconsciously, I think it, it, it is part of it. I've been out of Iraq for two years now, almost two years, and I miss the work, I miss the adrenaline, I miss the challenges. And since a young age, I had a sense of adventure in me. Um, it's one of the reasons why I went to join the Special Forces, amongst others. And I think you have to have a sense of adventure if you want to serve an organization like that and uh, go on to become a private military contractor. So, yeah, it's always been there. Um, but, yeah, over the years, I've uh, learned how to uh, manage it a little bit better than in my youth. But it's still there. We're talking to Johan Roth about his experiences as an operator in the South African um, Rekis, otherwise known as Special Forces, and his experiences in Iraq. When we come back, we're going to be chatting about um, Johan's early days when he joined the military and how he got involved in Special Forces. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. You listen to Confidential Brief. My name is Chad Thomas. In the hot seat today, Johan Roth, a ex-South African Defense Force Special Forces operator and private military contractor in war zones throughout the world. Johan, our listeners must be dying to know, how does somebody become a, a recce in South Africa? Um, these days, I'm not too sure. I think there is a process of contacting special forces and, and they go through a different kind of, um, rigmarole. But in our day, you know, we had to do two years, uh, conscription military service. And so I got my call up papers. I was a year too early to school. So my call up papers came when I was just over 15, approaching 16. Um, and, and in the call up papers, right at the back, there was a little form that said, you know, if you want to apply to try and join special 
forces or to go through the selection phases you can. So I filled this out because from a young age I had the mind of joining special forces. Uh, you grew up in, uh, you know, uh, your father, my, my dad served in the commandos and um, everybody he knew uh, were in the military or had military ties those days in the late 70s and early 80s. And I always had a keen uh, sense towards soldiering from a young age. So I filled out the form and I sent it off and then uh, they arranged for the guys that wanted to try to do pre-selection to go to Oatshorn. That was the beginning of 86. A bunch of us went there, did the pre-selection, made it, was sent off to Durban, did basic training there and then uh, the proper selection course. And then you do your one year um, basic uh, special forces training until the end of that year. So it, it was always a little bit of a challenge and a calling for me, and uh, fortunately I made it. I'm, I'm fortunate enough because uh, not the, 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 the amount of guys that qualified, I think, from us that went to Oatshorn out of 700 in the end of the uh, year was about eight. But I don't think everybody that went to, to Oatshorn that tried the pre-selection course really wanted to go, but yeah, from 700 we were eight that qualified. How many people in total, to your knowledge, have qualified as recce's in South Africa? It's around about 1,200 now. Um, in the old days, up until the conclusion of the, the border war in, in 1989, it was just uh, under 400, around 390. So let's round it off to 400. And, and bear in mind, that was from 1972. But yeah, after that, um, over the last uh, two two decades uh, and a bit, uh, it's it's been um, up to 1,200, of which 200 uh, is deceased um, through uh, action in, uh, in the old days and also through uh, accidents, training accidents and so on. I think another 200 has passed on from natural causes, the older God and, and guys that passed away with car accidents and this and that. And that uh, leaves you with about 800, of which roughly, I guess, 200 still serving, and about 600 then is left, that is ex-Special Forces, uh, in South Africa and all over the world. The guys has uh, gone far and wide to do security work and all sorts of other work, so it's not often that you bump into a Dinkam Reki. Um, there is only 600 guys that, that uh, was there, over and above the ones that still serve, and, and they disperse far and wide. How did you feel when you were given your operator's badge? That was a wonderful occasion. It was the 2nd of December 1986, and um, it, it, it was wonderful. It, it is something that you strive for. It's something you work hard for. It's something you blood, sweat, and tears um, came, comes to mind when you think of the process involved to get to it. But it was wonderful. That's what I wanted to do. That was my goal. I achieved the goal, and, you know, it, it, it was a wonderful feeling. South Africa's reconnaissance units were regarded as some of the best in the world. If one looks at special forces throughout the world, um, the British shine out with the, the special air service and the special boat service. And it was even an honor for South Africa because they named their, their units commandos out of respect for the Boer commandos because the British had found that that guerrilla warfare was, was such an incredible way of, of effecting um, a war or countering an attack in South Africa, and, and you, you must correct me if I'm wrong. Um, I remember there being three permanent force reconnaissance um, um, units. There was one reconnaissance on the bluff where you were. There was four reconnaissance in Langaban, and there was five, five reconnaissance in Palaboa. What were the differences between these units, and what was the specialized training at these three different units? 
Yes, I was stationed in Durban at one recce. That was the mother unit. That was the first unit that came about in 1972, actually in Oatshorn. And then uh, a couple of years after that moved to Durban. Um, and then from there sprung four and five recce uh, in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, okay, so one reconnaissance initially did all the work that Special Forces had to do. Um, and in the beginning it was mostly bush warfare, um, raids, uh, base attacks, um, that kind of thing when the war in 74 kicked off in Angola. And then later on, when 4 came about, they specialized in seaborne operations, um, attack diving, underwater demolitions, the use of small boats and working with uh, submarines, so on and so forth. And then 5 was the guys up in Palabora that did uh, most of the bush warfare. Um, although we all did cross-training and a lot of guys from different units, sometimes you needed a, a lot of operators, and there never was many of us, I mean, uh, w- all units at the height of, of our uh, campaign was probably 200, 250 guys. So if you've got a large force that need to attack a place, you, you draw guys from all units. But uh, essentially the guys from force stuck to the seaborne operations, but they also did bush operations. And then 5 Reiki had all the Portuguese-speaking members from 3-2 Battalion and guys that that uh, from UNITA and so on that came over, also from Mozambique, a couple um, that came to work for the South African. And they were very needed because, of course, in Angola, and Mozambique and these places we needed guys that could speak the languages. So they were very important in, in our bush operations. Um, so yeah, one recce specialized then one, when the other units came to the fore, one recce started specializing in urban warfare. We had the old whaling station down in Durban where we did very advanced uh, urban warfare training and to this day I reckon it's one of the best facilities that we had. We had underwater, underground pipes, uh, we had buildings, uh, we had killing houses, we had uh, house clearing rooms, we had uh, everything there. And, um, yeah, that, so they, they basically specialized in, in urban warfare, four recce waterborne warfare and five recce bush warfare. We're talking to Johan Rath about the South African reconnaissance. When we come back, we're going to talk about what happened to the reccees after 1989, after the war in Angola ended. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. I'm joined in studio today by Johan Rath, who is the author of the book Blood Money, which is available at all good bookstores. It's also available as an ebook, and it can also be ordered online. We'll be giving you more details about the book later in the show. Johan, you joined in, 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 in the mid-80s. In 1986, in December, you became an operator which very, very few people have ever become. It's a decimal point zero 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 percentage of people that have had this honor bestowed upon them. And it's not an honor that you can just achieve. It is a lot of hard work. It is a lot of sweat and tears. And the majority of people actually fail selection. Um, what was the percentage-wise of people that didn't make selection? Uh, I'm not sure how many didn't make it. I know that the guys that made it was somewhere between 1% and 3%, depending on, on your group. Um, yeah, but it was never more than 3%. It's, it's more about around about the 1% mark. And obviously, you know, qualifying in 1986, going into 87, 88, 89, things were changing in Angola, but there was still very heavy um, contacts taking place. There was still a war in, in, in effect taking place. What was the role of the Reckies in respect of the of the Bush War and the Border War? 
The wreckage from the word go was the tip of the spear for the South African National Defense Force. Um, of course, your, your first mission is to go behind enemy lines, uh, deep uh, reconnaissance, penetration jobs, and to find out where the enemy is and what they get up to. And, and those, those were performed in, in mainly small groups, two-man teams called small teams. Um, it's nerve-wracking work, that kind of work. And then, of course, they have to compile all the evidence for the raiding party or the attack parties that follow, um, be it uh, combined between the three units or is, be it with 3-2 battalion or with, with some other components of the defense force. Um, so, first of all, it was intelligence gathering behind enemy lines. And then, of course, your sabotage, your, your demolitions and, and your, your seaborne sabotage uh, operations, uh, sinking ships in harbors, blowing up railway lines, disrupting the enemy's logistics. Um, and then you had raiding parties as well, attacking bases, um, so on and so forth. Uh, by the time I qualified, uh, there were still three years left of the Angola War, um, 87, 88, 89. For us, fortunately, at the end of 86, we went on an operation, part of our training, where we had contact with the enemy, and that was great. That uh, You know, they tried to, um, for all courses, at the end of the course, they tried to arrange an operation in Angola where you can get the fire initiation and make contact with the enemy. And I think we were the last guys that uh, were privy to that as a training course to have had uh, contact with the enemy. So 87, 88, 89, the guys were still busy with uh, intelligence gathering and of course with Quito Carnival and these battles, the special forces guys were close to the action because they had to talk in the airstrikes, they had to talk in the artillery and we had to find out what, what the guys were, were up to. And then uh, in 1989, with the nine-day war, um, when Swapu came across the border, the UN was there, UNTAG was there already, and most of the combat units has left. So they turned around some of the units, and, and some of the Rekis were called upon to work with Kufu those days, and also to, to come and assist with the nine-day war. And uh, ironically enough, the first casualty of the Angola war in 74 was a one Reiki member, and the last, uh, Lieutenant Zili, and the last casualty of the South African National Defense Force, the 4th of April 1989, was Corporal Herman Karsten. So both were from one Ricky, the first and the last casualty in that war. It's, it's incredible listening to these stories, and, and what makes it all the more incredible is to sit with somebody that's been through this and to hear somebody say, it's, it's great to have made contact with the enemy. Um, it's something that a normal person doesn't ever expect or, or would ever find themselves in. And you found yourself in these positions and you were able to, you know, through the training effectively retaliate or, 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 or finish your mission. But it obviously takes a, a person with a different perspective on life to be able to lay their life down on the line every day and there's absolutely no recognition for it because the work that a recce does isn't recognized when they're going in to sabotage when they're going in it's for intelligence how did you feel do you think it was more the fact that you are an adrenaline junkie do you think it's the fact that you wanted to make a difference and what are your thoughts on on your experiences and your skirmishes in the past Especially take into context the Angolan aspect. I always say I was born 10 years too late because the, the early Rekis in the mid 70s, late 70s, early 80s really had a lot of operations and a lot of contact. Us guys that came later on in the 80s were lucky if you, if you had a contact or two and a skirmish. Um, 
But at the end of the day, that's what you are trained for. That's that's what you are looking forward to. Um, and remember now, while you're in training, you you aspire to the to the instructors and you inspire to the older operators. You want to be you want to walk in their footsteps. So for you, it's great. Um, for them, maybe it's just another operation. It's a, it's another firefight. It's another contact. Um, I can't say that I looked forward to it. And it, you, you get a fright when people shoot at you, for sure. But that's where your training kicks in, and I think that's where the selection comes in because they were really strict in the way that they selected guys, not only physically but also mentally, to probably make sure that, that you can withstand this kind of thing. So, yeah, it, it's what you are trained for. It's what you need to do. Um, I can't say I look forward to it. I can't say I was uh, afraid of it. It was just part of what you had to do, and, and you made peace with it. And I think your year training was so good. And, and the instructors gave you such confidence that you were ready to, to do anything. We were actually very happy and, and, uh, we, you know, we, we were glad afterwards that we did make contact and that we could learn from the old guys, um, what to do and how to go about it. So yeah, I'm, I'm, we were fortunate. Not everybody had that opportunity towards the end, but we were fortunate. How intense was that extra year training that special force members that passed selection would go on? Give our, give our, our listeners a, an indication of what that year entailed because it's very difficult for people to wrap their minds around it. It's intense. I mean, you do your, your selection and, and, and that's tough enough. Um, after that, you get a few days off and then you start with um, special forces orientation, which is basically weapons handling, all sorts of weapons from all over the world because we used foreign weapons on our on our missions, mainly from the East Bloc, the Russian-made stuff. Um, we, we rarely use South African weapons. So you have to know how to use um, German weapons. You have to know how to use Russian weapons. You have to know how to use American weapons, uh, all sorts of weapons. So that that was good, and you do mortar training. It's like platoon, infantry platoon, just on a more involved basis. You shoot RPGs, you throw mortars, you do a fire and movement with all these weapons and so on. Then after that, you go for your boat or your water orientation down in Langebon. Um Sorry, before that, we went on dark face. They call it dark face. That's now your enemy in the old days. So you went to Palabora. That was a tough course because the instructors were ex-terrorists, um, terrorists, Swapla, um, guys that, that came to work for us. And, and now you had to learn how they lived in the bush camps where they did their training under the Russians and we ever trained them. And that was tough because they, they, they really... Um, screwed you around so that was called dark face amongst the operators because it was a dark time in your life it was a difficult course after that we went down to Longabon we did water orientation there you do a little bit of boat work you do a little bit of diving and swimming um, for a couple of weeks they it's cold man it, it, it was in June 1986 and I tell you what Longabon's water is cold as it is and that was the coldest I've ever been I grew up in the free state and uh, yeah I tell you, that's something else. I take my hat off to those guys, but they, you acclimatize to it, and, and you, you become used to it. That was good. Then after that, we went to Bloemfontein, jump course, parachute battalion. We had to go and jump, learn how to jump out the airplane. That was straightforward enough. Then after that, we had air orientation down in Zululand. You worked, uh, then you do some jumping because you've qualified as a jumper. You do some helicopter work. You do rope work, repelling out of helicopters, night work, um, everything to do with air operations. After that, you have to do demolitions. Uh, that was in Durban, how to work with explosives and landmines and claymore mines and uh, cortex and detonators and all these things. That's that's a bit of a theoretical course, and some guys failed there because you need to do a little bit of mathematics on it. 
Um, and then after that, you fly up to the Caprivi. You go and do your bush phases. First, you do survival, bush survival for a couple of weeks. Um, learn how to live off the land and how to hunt and trap and uh, only living with a knife on your body, how to make fire with sticks, that kind of thing. And then after that, it's your guerrilla warfare phase or your unconventional phase. We call it minor tactics, but there's nothing minor about it. That's one of the toughest courses around. Uh, even to this day. So why they call it minor tactics is we've learned all the major tactics during the year. You've learned parachuting, you've learned demolitions, you have learned everything, foreign weapons, and now you have to go and put it in practice. But minor tactics are the things that special forces guys have to look at, little things like your camo, like making sure that your equipment can't be traced. Even your matches, for example, you, if, if you had to take matches, you can't take matches from South Africa on operations. You have to get matches that comes out of Europe or America so that nothing, nothing actually can be traced back. Your anti-tracking, um, your your raids, your ambushes, your, all those things get done in over a period of two months in the Caprivi, and that's intense course. And then after that, you get taken to operation in Angola, hopefully to make uh, contact with the enemy, which we were fortunate enough to do. Then you fly to Durban and you do a two-week urban orientation, urban warfare orientation, where you do room clearing, killing house, um, you do urban obstacles, uh, work with a little bit of helicopters uh, in an urban environment and so on. And once that's done, you are qualified. That's your basic year training. And then after that, you start specializing. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. Today we're talking about a book that, that, that is, is quite horrifying in, in terms of its context because it gives the story of an ex-Rekki's missions as a private military contractor in Iraq. The book is called Blood Money and it's about, about Johan Roth's experience. And Johan is in studio with us today. And I read a section from the book earlier where it was within a short period of time that Johan had, had arrived in what we, what, what we've heard people term the sandpit and he was already under attack. Tell us about your time after Angola, what you did in the Rekis when you left and how it is that you landed up in Iraq. In 1989 when we returned from Angola, um, I was sent to the training wing, which I'm glad about uh, the special forces training wing. Um, I come from a family, a line of, of teachers, and it seemed that I had a knack of teaching, and I enjoyed this military kind of teaching. So I was there for three years, 89 till 92, and um, towards the middle end of 92, you know, by then things has changed quite a lot in South Africa, and that wasn't the main reason. It had to change. It had to come. Uh, we, we we accepted that, uh, but for me, uh, you know, after training wing, I wasn't sure where I was going to go and what I was going to do. So I thought, now I've got all these skills, and there was opportunities in Africa to work as a military contractor, and um, I started doing training jobs, VIP protection, so on and so forth. And then towards the latter part of the 90s, um, opportunity arose where we could be uh, used as private military contractors on, on specialized uh, missions. 
training and mentoring mostly. You know, that's what uh, private military contractors do. Um, you go and train forces, you mentor them, and you get them ready to, to do what they need to do in wherever they, what country. So I got involved in the late 90s and the early 2000s. I started, uh, I worked on the presidential uh, election campaign in Madagascar for, for Ravalo Manana before he came in power. After that, I moved on to Haiti and I worked for uh, President Aristide for over a year. I was the senior agent on that uh, protection detail. And when things went south in um, in Haiti, the company, the American company that we worked for, found a contract in Iraq. And that was the heyday of contracting in Iraq was the early 2004, early in 2004. From 2003 onwards, there were contracts, but uh, they were few and far between. But there were South Africans already in the sandbox from, from the end of 2003. And a few in Afghanistan, but Afghanistan, although the Americans invaded Afghanistan first, the contracting works only came later. Um, Iraq is actually, you know, the country that uh, where you look at modern day private military contracting where it really took off and it, and it took fire. And the reason for that is because the American military was so busy with the aftermath of the war, they won the conventional war in no time at all. But then there was an insurgency, which they didn't bargain on. And, um, that insurgency caught them off guard. So they had to use a lot of resources on suppressing the insurgency and trying to get to grips with, with all the different terrorist organizations. And therefore, they didn't really have enough combat soldiers or, or soldiers to guard airports, to do convoy protection, to look after certain civilian people that was necessary to, to make the whole thing work in Iraq, Americans, engineers, um, ex-generals, advisors, and so on. So they outsourced it. And that's where private military contracting really uh, kicked off uh, well and good. So the contractors w went in not to fight the war, not to work with the American military, but to protect. And we were there to protect installations like power stations, like airports, um, like, like certain government installations. And then, of course, to do training, to help with training the Iraqi forces, the police forces, the military, and then to protect individuals, um, VIPs, and then also engineers that went in to rebuild the country because it was bombed to oblivion. So they needed new roads, new power stations, new uh, military bases, uh, police stations, and so on. And, and those engineers were all Americans, and they were under threat, so they needed protection from us. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about Johan landing up in Iraq, the first contact that he had with the enemy, and what happened after that. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. You're listening to Confidential Brief. Today I'm in conversation with Johan Roth. We chat to you about his best-selling book, Blood Money, which is stories of an ex-Rekki's missions as a private military contractor in Iraq. Before we went to break, we were talking about how Johan landed up in Iraq and how quick he got into the thick of things. Yes, Chad. I was there for about 10 days, 11 days, when we were sent on a reconnaissance mission south of Baghdad in an area called the Triangle of Death. Um, it, it was hazardous area and uh, anyway we, we got ambushed, it was a rolling ambush while we were driving a um, couple of cars pulled in uh, in front of us behind us started shooting like the wild west while we were on, on the uh, driving on one of the freeways um, uh, anyway we survived it, one of our drivers got shot through the arms medic uh, got shot through the head but it was just a glance, he was very lucky he, he left um, we took a lot of rounds that day how we got out of it I don't know but that particular day I saw 
I saw one of the attackers next to our, our car coming past us, and he was about two, three meters away from me, and I saw the hate in his eyes. I've never seen such hate, such conviction in anybody's eyes, and I saw this as a different ball game. So I made it a point to learn, to study, and I started studying the terrorist organizations and the ways that they attack us, the techniques, tactics, and procedures. Um, I learned about the different uh, insurgency groups and the different militias, and um, it, it stood me in good stead. I, I, I then developed a keen interest in, in politics in the Middle East, and I tried to work out this whole thing. Why are the people so angry at foreigners? Why are they so determined to kill each other, the, the Sunnis and the Shias and so on and so forth? So uh, after that attack, um, yeah, we got uh, bombed and mortared and rocketed on a on a weekly basis in the areas I was in. Uh, we had a few suicide bomb attacks where I was close to the bombs, and uh, I guess I was lucky, you can say. But I learned. I learned a lot about the politics in the Middle East. So, yeah, it, 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 not everybody went through that. Some guys were at military bases and so on, but the guys that were out on the roads and the outposts, they're the ones that took a lot of it. Let's talk about what you learned about the politics of the Middle East um, last week, um, it was announced that the caliphate of ISIS had been defeated. And I put out a message to my friends on Facebook, and I asked you specifically, as as somebody who had served in the Middle East, um, is this true? Has ISIS been defeated? And what is happening in the Middle East in respect of the reestablishment of these organizations? Because we hear Al-Qaeda is defeated, but then we see the rise of ISIL or ISIS. What has happened in, in that area, and what is your personal views on that? We must just back up a little bit and look at the history there in Iraq specifically. So after 9-11, the Americans obviously had to do something. I mean, they had a superpower of the world. They got hurt badly, and they had to do something, right, wrong, or indifferent. They invaded Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, it's not for us to say if it was right or wrong. Work was generated, and a lot of South Africans that were... Um, uh, let go in the military in the late 90s, mid-90s with the changes, were then on the street looking for work. So it came at a good time for the South Africans. Um, after Saddam Hussein was caught in 2003, or after the ground war, um, the, there was a guy by the name of Zarqavi, Musab al-Zarqavi. Um, and he... He aspired to similar attacks than what Bin Laden did. Uh, they met in 1988-89 in Afghanistan when they went to join the Mujahideen against the Russians, and that's where a lot of the insurgents came from. It is um, it, it, it is because of Afghanistan, uh, and the Americans trained a lot of them. Remember, they saw the Soviet Union as a big threat. So a lot of those guys, like Bin Laden and like Zarqavi and a few of the other freedom fighters, were trained uh, probably by the Americans. But then they got disillusioned, and then uh, Al-Qaeda went on in the early 90s. Uh, nobody took note of them until the bombings in uh, Kenya and uh, in Dar es Salaam. In 98, and then they started looking at them. But anyway, back to Iraq. 2003, after the ground war, um, uh, Zarqavi aspired to a similar attack than uh, what Bin Laden did. They met in 89, apparently, in Afghanistan, but they were not fond of each other. Zarqavi was always more militant than Bin Laden. And, and it's difficult to understand that anybody could be more militant than Bin Laden. But anyway, so Zarqavi was in exile. He was a Jordanian-born militant, and he was in exile in northeastern Iraq, close to Kurdistan, in 2002-2003 when the Americans invaded. 
and um, he was he, he he had training camps there where um, Saddam Hussein allowed him to train terrorists. And I think if the Americans said that uh, maybe you know that was one of the reasons we wanted to invade Iraq is to try and get rid of this guy because we know he's got aspirations of of similar attacks than Bin Laden. Maybe that would have gone down better than than the weapons of mass destruction that that the politicians were sold on. The intelligence services knew. There wasn't, but there were Iranian sources that was in exile, not Iranians, Iraqis that, uh, Shias that was in, uh, Iran in exile, and they convinced some of the politicians that there was weapons of mass destruction, thinking that, of course, they will overthrow their arch enemy, which was Saddam Hussein. So he was overthrown, and his henchmen, the Revolutionary Guard and all the intelligence officers, he had a million-man army. Uh, most of them were Sunnis. Of course, uh, the Sunnis are the minority in Iraq. The Shias are the majority, and they brutally suppressed the Shias for many years. So when he was overthrown, um, a lot of those guys went underground because the Americans persecuted them, and, and the, the new Shia government persecuted them. And they traditionally from northern and western Iraq, the, the Sunnis in Iraq. So they went into the western desert, into Fallujah, Ramadi, those places, and up north to Mosul, Sinjar. Um, it was close to the Syrian border. And, of course, across the border in Syria, there's a majority of Sunnis, but they are suppressed by a minority Shias, and that's Bashar al-Assad. So it was just the other way around in Iraq. So uh, they could find a lot of um, sympathizers because there was all these guys without work and the new Shia government that was influenced heavily by Iran was suppressing the Sunnis. They didn't include them in the new military that was formed. They didn't include them in the new political process that was formed. These guys were disillusioned and they started forming resistance groups, insurgency groups to fight against the Americans which now overthrew their old commander and, and uh, the Shia government that didn't include them. And so uh, Al-Qaeda saw opportunity, and Zarqavi actually, uh, he hated the Americans, and he hated any foreigners, and he hated the Shias. So he started with a terror campaign. In 2003, he bombed, he, he bombed the, the UN uh, headquarters in Baghdad to such an extent that the special representative to the UN was killed. It was uh, towards the latter part of 2003. It was uh, known as the canal bombing. And then, of course, he beheaded Nick Burke, which was an American contractor, also in the end of 2003. And he became, he started a, a violent group. Now, it was a little known group. It was a Arabic kind of name. But in 2004, Bin Laden contacted Zarqavi and he said, hey, you, you've done enough now to prove yourself. We, we want you to represent Al-Qaeda in Iraq. So they became known as AQI. Al-Qaeda in Iraq, and they did a lot of bombing, killed a lot of Americans, killed a lot of contractors. By the way, not a lot of people know it, and until I researched this book, nobody knew it. 38 South Africans were killed from 2004 till 2010 in Iraq. There is a role of honor at the end of this book uh, dealing with that. So nobody knew about that, but they went after contractors the same as they went after military um, military personnel and so on. So Zarqavi got so violent that in 2010, 2005, he bombed a very holy Shia shrine um, in, in uh, Iraq, in north of Baghdad, and that led to a full-on civil war. In 2006, that was the height of the civil war between Sunni and Shia. And by then, Bin Laden said, no, it's one thing to kill Americans, it's one thing to kill foreigners, but to kill Muslims, fellow Muslims, to bomb their mosques is not on. So he got too violent for them. He said, screw you all. He started ISI, which was the Islamic, Islamic State in Iraq, 
And shortly before he died, um, he, he got bombed in June 2006 by the Americans. Um, and the only reason he got bombed, they wanted to, to actually capture him. But there was a sandstorm, and they only knew where he was for a limited period of time. So the special forces was ready to grab him and to squeeze him, but uh, they bombed him into oblivion. What I find incredible and what I take away from what you just said is that Bin Laden found somebody that was too violent and too dangerous. It's it's just so bizarre. If you want to know more about Johan Rath and more about this complex situation in the Middle East that involves all these extremists, you need to follow Johan Rath and his book Blood Money on social media. Johan, um, the book Blood Money, in closing, what is it about in essence? Well, I wrote about this history that we just spoke now, and uh, Zarkavi was the great-grandfather of ISIS because once he got killed, his henchmen went underground, and the Americans got to grip with the Al-Qaeda insurgency. But they went over the border to Syria, and of course in 2011, when the Americans withdrew, there was a vacuum. And um, in Syria, they started rising as ISI. Yes. So it was the Islamic, Islamic State in Iraq, which was no, the first ISI, and then they just added S for Syria. Then in 2012, they started atrocities. 2014, they invaded Iraq, and we all know about the caliphate and everything that happened thereafter. So I've addressed all this in my book, but I've also addressed the day-to-day living of private military contractors. Nobody's ever written about it. You know, day-to-day account. There's a lot of humor in the book. Of course, there's a lot of drama, a lot of heartache, a lot of blood, but there's also a lot of relationships between different nations, different contractors, us and the Iraqis, us and the Kurds, um, inter- inter-country relations that we had to form to make it work. Um, there's a lot of drama, you know, back at home, the wives that stayed behind, um, you know, what did they do for years on end without their husbands? And, of course, that led to other problems. So it's a book of drama, war, blood. Uh, there's a lot of humor in it. It's a book of politics in the Middle East. It's a book of terrorist organizations, the weapons, the type of attacks. Um, if you want to learn more about private contracting and specifically what happened in the Middle East to this day, then, then the book is for you. Johan, it's been an absolute pleasure and an honor to interview you today. Um, it's been 10 years since we actually sat down and had a chat. I hope it's not going to be another 10 years. I believe there's another book in the pipeline. Good luck with that. Thank you. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for the opportunity, Chad. Blood Money, Story of an Ex-Rekki's Missions as a Private Military Contractor in Iraq by Johan Rath is available at all good bookstores. It is available as an e-book. It is already a bestseller. And it's something that you need to read to understand the complexities of the Middle East.